of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, oh, yeah. A disc jockey, a narcissist, and a misogynist walk into a bar. That's just the first guy. <laughs> Live from the hey. gleaming streamlined state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com nestled in a secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. I could give you the street address, but it wouldn't mean to. following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen with a real attitude. <laughs> Always. Always. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I'm Burl Bear, living legend of my own mind. Fact checker, Mark C.G. Boyer, sitting next to me. Yes, I am. Say hi to your guest, would you? Hi, hi guest. guest. Hi, how are you? Millions of people are totally unaware this show even exists. <laughs> Those few who do know, we're looking forward to talking to you today. Oh, yeah. Here we go. I'll edit this until it sounds really tight <laughs> when, it, when it hits the syndication market in Japan. Jeff. Is that where you're big? Oh, we're, we're all big. We're Japan. all big in Japan. Oh, well, I find that I'm more popular in Europe than I am here. So, well, <laughs> hey, Jeff, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. You know, I was I was ruminating this morning, but they caught me. But uh, <laughs> I, I was realizing that I've read most of your books that people read, and. <laughs> that narrows it down. Yeah. More people read the ones they read than the ones they don't. Hey, uh, that's impressive. That's impressive. Uh, I yeah. have I've read Two Gun Heart more than once. I have read The Great Heist more than once, and Pro Bono, oh, wow. which is not a book about uh, chastity and study and share. Well, it's more of a uh, yeah, a bay um, murder, but a series of murders. Uh, and the defense uh, team of a girl who was accused of being the, the, the serial killer, that's what I think. Uh, uh, the defense team who was representing the girl who was accused of being the uh, accomplice right. to the serial killer. Yeah, but she wasn't really, was she? Where was she? No, oh, no, no. In fact, actually, she had broken up with him uh, before the murder spree began. That's actually what triggered the murder spree was him being mad at her for doing that. Uh, and in the end, she ended up escaping from him and running to the police. And one of the big things that the prosecution used was, oh, why didn't she ever escape from him? Why didn't she ever run from him? Well, she did. She <laughs> literally was the reason that he got caught. He was about to kill a 12th person. And she managed to get the police, who didn't know he was there, even though he was in the middle of the street. Uh, and they ended up chasing after him, but then they turned to her and went, and you were his accomplice. And uh, well, no, she was no. like, well, well, actually, they didn't even, yeah, they didn't even tell her. They didn't even give her a lawyer for weeks. There was no guarantee to the, the right of a fair trial on a uh, state level. On a, on a federal level, there was, but not on a state level. And Nebraska, just the, the state of Nebraska just basically railroaded her. And unfortunately, ever since then, it's been portrayed as the 50s version of Bonnie and Clyde. It's been, it, was the, uh, it was the concept of the story uh, of the movie Badlands, of uh, Natural Born Killers, of the album Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen, and like countless documentaries. And they typically always portray her as being his accomplice, when in fact there was never any evidence that she ever was. It was just back in the 50s they believed anything the police said. And the police had been so humiliated that this that the serial killer had gotten away from them for so long. The serial killer himself was teasing them about it, that they won't, they wanted to basically distract and point at somebody else and go, see, she helped them. And people just believed them because back in those days, they just believed them for anything. Yeah. Um, even though, you know, a juror even bet that she would be found guilty. Uh, you know, it was just, it was, they just literally railroaded her. And so my grandfather believed so much in her innocence that he represented her. Uh, for 18 years until he got out of prison. 18 so years, that's a long time to be fighting I'm, for I'm sorry, Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And he did it completely pro bono because she was 14 years old when this all happened. She was a little girl. I mean, not only a little girl than young, but little as in small. She was about four feet tall. Couldn't even lift a gun that physically. Might... Could not even lift one up. She was, yeah. she was, she was small. Did she win any compensation for her, in, her improper incarceration? No, unfortunately, I mean, they, they, in fact, actually what ended up happening was uh, they got her on, on parole because they wanted, they tried to uh, get a new trial. They tried to get one on a higher and higher level. It, it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and ended up getting denied. Um, but uh, so in the end, she ended up having to go for parole. And it was very odd because in parole, you're supposed to say, well, 
yes, I did it, but I'm a changed person now. Right. And she continued to maintain her innocence. So it was very awkward for her. She even admitted. I, it's one of the most interesting parts of it is because my the you know my father was was representing her by that point, and he was telling her, okay, you have to you know say you're sorry, blah blah blah. And she starts to do it, but then she just breaks down and she goes, I can't do this. I can't, you know, like in the, while speaking to the parole board, she breaks down and gives this sort of speech about how, you know, I'm in this awkward position because I still maintain my innocence, but you want me to say this other thing and I don't believe in lying. And she basically ends up kind of convincing them by being so honest, by saying, I, you know, if you want to see that I'm a good person, understand I refuse to lie about this and I don't. You know, I, I, this is what happened, and blah, 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 blah. So, anyway, it's, it's, it's a fascinating story, and it's a fascinating yeah. book. And so I recommend anyone who is still literate in America. <laughs> well, did you know, Burl? Fights for justice and that which is real and getting the truth is still important to a lot of people. And when you yeah. see people just... And we have so many cases like that. Uh, we had on the... Uh, I can't remember the fellow's name, but other people do. Maybe, maybe you know it, Mark. The fellow who was... Railroaded for the uh, home invasion murders that were done by three guys in a green Oldsmobile. He was a black guy down the street. Once they knew there was a black guy down the street, they went, ah, case solved. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, yep. uh, just a few years ago, again, a group of attorneys went to the governor and said, hey, governor, you know, this guy is obviously innocent, even though he was found guilty of murdering children and adults and this horrible thing. But he, he, he obviously didn't do it. And the governor said, gee, I, I, I hate to, you know, give amnesty or whatever you call it, clemency, to someone who's convicted of such horrible crimes, <laughs> even though he didn't do it. So, I mean, it's become a, a political thing as well. And the guy's still in prison. Yeah. And it's a... Uh... Man. Oh, another one that maybe you're familiar with is the... Uh, uh, the, the nice uh, guy, the policeman, they had a thing on like 50, uh, on Dateline or one of those shows, where they questioned whether or not these two men who'd been found guilty of murder were actually guilty. It seemed to seem that they were innocent. The chief of police says to the guy, will you review this case, please? And then tell me what you think. And he says, yeah, he reviews the case. He goes, they're right. These guys are obviously innocent. You know, this is this was stacked up on him. It was a railroad thing. And the chief of police says, keep your mouth shut. And he refuses. And he goes on a campaign to get these two innocent men out of prison, which is wow. justice. And he's successful. They're finally released. Wow. He's victorious. He's a champion of justice. But he lost his pension because he revealed city secrets, which was a violation of his contract. The secret was, of course, that they railroaded these two guys. So uh, yeah. like, no good deed goes unpunished. Your family to devote 18 years to, uh, to yeah. justice is very impressive. In the <clears throat> but, they, you know, <clears throat> even though she's out, justice hasn't been served. All she's, she's still a convicted murderer. Yeah, you're right about that. Right. Well, in fact, actually, yeah, they went, they, uh, a new lawyer, they, they didn't even try for a pardon for a very long time. And these other lawyers came along uh, who just were so convinced that she, or they, I mean, were so convinced that she should be, uh, what do you call it, um, she shouldn't be pardoned. That uh, that he went on a crusade. Now, ironically, actually, it's the it's a man by the name of John uh, John Stevens Berry who represented the the real life person that you know the movie uh, Apocalypse Now. Um, Marlon Brando's character was inspired by this real life person who, who was in Vietnam, uh, and John Berry had represented him way back in the day, and and from that he had had this confidence and got this reputation for being able to take on very difficult cases. And this was kind of like going to be his final thing to be able to get Carol Fugate pardoned in the state of Nebraska, which is like, there people still believe she's completely guilty. They, they think she should have been on Charlie Starkweather's lap when he was given the electric chair and all that sort of thing. Uh, and so he went for a pardon. He even had the granddaughter and son of, of uh, two of the victims, um, two of the most prominent ones, actually. They became convinced. She, the, the granddaughter had read my book. I met me and then started talking with the family and the family became, would, for all these years, decades, had been convinced she was guilty, turned around, changed their mind, decided she was innocent. They then joined with John Stevens and trying to find Carol, or trying to get her her pardon. And the governor wouldn't even let them speak. The governor was still clear. They went up and rather than having a pardons trial, he literally said, we're not even gonna discuss this, end of story. And after they had been preparing for years for this, he says, I'm not even going to let all, any of you speak. Just sit down and that's it. 
And that's, that's, that's we get these ones where the prosecutors will say, we didn't need DNA evidence to convict them. We don't need to look at it now. And that just right, blows exactly. my mind. Because you know, the thing is that prosecutors take a pledge. If it's not, they're not, their job isn't to find people guilty. Right. Their, their job is justice. And if the person's not, you know, they're not supposed to prosecute someone that they don't really think is guilty. <clears throat> there was a case well, that passed, the- passed by the show uh, many years ago. Where it was clear that the uh, convicted was innocent. Prosecution had uh, falsified evidence. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it was clear. Uh, there was no question or doubt. The uh, appellate court judge reviewing the petition for reversal uh, looked at everything and said, it's pretty obvious prosecutorial misconduct occurred and that the defendant is innocent. But that isn't sufficient to overturn the conviction. Yep, I no. remember that one. You believe that? You know, <laughs> Just, right? You know, I mean, here's ultimately ultimately the problem, and here's what we can do about it as the public is because it feels very hel- uh, helpless because we're not prosecutors or anything like that, but we can vote, you know, for or against them and that sort of thing. And the problem with the system is that it is based on uh, they get rewarded for numbers of convictions rather than fairness of convictions. Right. Uh, and so we all, as the public, need to pay more attention to is it fair? Rather, than, you know, somebody goes up on screen in a commercial and brags about I had X number of convictions. That should be a red flag actually against them, not because they're you know well we you know we don't want them doing their job, but rather because they're bragging about convictions rather than fairness. When you look at the, the you know and you're deciding between two different prosecutors. Go for the one who shows the the ability to be fair and go after the right people, as opposed to the numbers. Because that's that's what it is. is they're just basically going, well, if that, this person's not innocent, that's one less off of my thing, mm-hmm. and that's one less number I get to say in my next, uh, uh, you know, when I. Yeah, all, I mean, all my life growing up, I always thought the prosecutor's job was to find people guilty, but it's not. You're right. And right. most people well, believe that, but that's not their I, job. Right. Well, and unfortunately, it's, it, it is insofar as that's what they're rewarded for. It shouldn't be their job. It should definitely not be their job. It should be to convict the right person, not to convict the person. <clears throat> and that, unfortunately, that's the way they see it. They see it as, well, just get a conviction regardless of whether or not the person's actually guilty because, well, my numbers, well, they just want the numbers to go up, and that's the problem. One of the strangest ones was in my hometown of Walla Walla, Washington, where they arrested and prosecuted someone that they did, the police did not believe did it. And neither did the prosecutor. Yeah. No one believed this person did it. And they all believed she'd be found not guilty. But she was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without parole. 20 years yeah. she was in prison before the a new governor said, this is crazy because you all knew what you were doing in the first place. Why they bothered to arrest her was one of the strangest explanations I ever received. The detective told me, well, we thought that she wouldn't be found guilty. And if she was, we could say, well, we'll go to the governor if you'll tell us who you think really did it. <laughs> Man, yeah. If you'll, uh, I, I wish I could say I'm surprised, you know. I think but. every prosecutor that we have had on this show, we've asked them the question, have you been told to prosecute someone that in your heart of heart believed was innocent? And they all answered yes. And we had on the uh, prosecutor from New York, a fine young lady whose name I unfortunately I can't recall right at this moment. Julie was the first name. I do know that. And she said yes. That's the reason she left the prosecutor's office. Yeah. Because she was told to prosecute someone that she firmly believed was innocent. It was a rough gig. Well, you know, and a lot of times people will slam on defense attorneys. Like, how can you defend somebody you know is, is innocent? Um, yeah, I mean, how can yeah. you defend somebody you know is guilty? But they don't think to ask the prosecutors, how can you convict somebody you know is innocent? You know, they don't realize both sides end up doing that. And it's the, it, that's even worse is when you're, you're prosecuting people you know are innocent because now you're, you're doing a double problem. You are both putting an innocent person in jail and letting a guilty person go free. A friend of mine was a, uh, uh, what do you call it, public defender. What they call public uh-huh. pretenders a lot of times. <laughs> uh, and in the middle of the trial, the judge... Uh, calls him over to the bench and says, why are you working so hard for your client? Remember who pays you. Because the judge and the public defender both are paid by the same place. You know, I mean, the same people. I don't pay them. And he said, well, it's my job. I'm supposed to give the best defense possible. Well, no, you're not. <laughs> well, yes, I am. 
and I will. Yeah. And well, I, you know, go ahead. Funny enough, after the book came out, I started learning some various things, and one of the most shocking things that just came was this. In, I was kind of because he said this in public. It was one of the largest gatherings where I gave a talk in Nebraska. Um, this guy started challenging, and he basically told me because his. He was the son of the judge in the Carol Fugue case, and he told me that his uh, his father actually had not been trying to assign my grandfather to the case. He had been trying to assign my grandfather's partner. And I went, you know, that actually explains a lot, because I always wondered, because it also came out that the judge was working with the prosecution, because oftentimes judges are former prosecutors. Mm -hmm. So the judge had actually, it was one of the prosecutor's uh, assistants told me again after the book had come out that they had been working behind the scenes with the judge. And so I was like, if the, and it's so blatant in the trial itself, the judge had been working for her, her conviction and all that, um, that it was like, well, why did he go after somebody who was known to have integrity? I mean, I know that I sound biased, but my grandfather was somebody who was very, very known for integrity. He was not wealthy because he would not go after big cases. He'd go after cases that he truly believed in. Mm -hmm. uh, and he oftentimes, instead of taking payment, he would take, like, uh, you know, you're in Nebraska, so you, he would take, uh, like, farm things or, you know, people would pay him with, like, farm animals or something like that sometimes. Uh, and he, I want that um, so I was like, always wondered why did, you know, why did this judge, if he was working more with the prosecution, get somebody with so much integrity that he knew would actually defend her. And here was the son of the judge in front of all these people saying, well, he wasn't really trying to get your grandfather. He was trying to get this other person. And I kind of got the idea he was trying to humiliate me with that, but I just kind of went, oh, that makes sense because my grandfather's lawyer was not known to have so much integrity. So that's why the judge <laughs> would go after, you know, somebody who would, would be like, let's get this guy who will just allow us to steamroll over him. Uh, but the, what had happened was my grandfather's partner was out on a safari when the judge called. So he just went, well, I'll take the case. Uh, <laughs> so he wound I'll up with somebody who, who really tried. You know, there was a case in uh, Tacoma that, uh, of course, I obviously I wrote a book about. <laughs> book is called Headshot. <laughs> and in that, there were mistrials declared because of, there was so much prosecutorial misconduct. This judge threw a fit. He goes, this case is giving me eccentric headache number 831. And he stormed off the bench. And left the case. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I knew. <laughs> and, and the defense attorney was so upset with the prosecutor for all the misconduct that he ran against him and won. So that now he was the prosecutor. And of course, on appeal of his own case, his office has to try to counter his own appeal. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really fascinating yeah, one. That's wow. A, that, that's a strange one, yeah. That, uh, that, yeah. was, that, was the, the, that was the case where there were so many trials uh, in this particular one and appeals to the state Supreme Court that I went to Olympia, Washington, where the state Supreme Court is and where all their archives are, where they had all the court documents from all trials and all retrials, mistrials, and appeals to the court. I said, I need some copies. He said, well, what do you want? I said, I want absolutely everything. And he said, no one's ever asked for absolutely everything before. I had to rent a big cargo van to take all the documents from these trials back home with me. And I never got a bill. I think they, they didn't know wow. what to charge me. <laughs> it's too late now. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you don't want every. I mean, the reason people typically don't want everything is it's just too much to go over. And so a lot of times, like, that's usually a strategy of the other side is, like, to send everything because then what the one thing they need is so buried that it's difficult to find it. And interestingly enough, there was something that had disappeared. I, years after I wrote the book, I get a phone call from an attorney. He goes, oh, Mr. Bear, I'm representing so-and-so um, you know, is convicted of participating in this murder, blah, blah, blah. Uh, do you have the sentencing document? I said, well, everybody knows what the sentencing was. He goes, well, no one can find a copy of the sentencing document, you know, side stamp, signed, sealed, delivered. We've all copies of it have vanished. Do you have a copy of it? And I went through and said, sure enough, it wasn't in this stuff either. It was gone. So next they said, well, can you find, uh, was there any news reports on this? And yes, uh, one of the TV stations was there and like videotaped the entire sentencing hearing. But new people had bought the station and erased all the tapes. Oh. <laughs> 
They called the judge in and the court reporter from the original trial. And the judge testified that he sentenced the person to serve the sentences concurrently, not consecutively. The prison was saying, no, it's consecutively, and we're keeping the guy in prison. And they kept him in long after he should have been out. And they finally released him on medical reasons. But uh, that was another weird one, where all the documents disappeared, all the copies of it. So strange things go on. Yeah, you just, you learn these things and just, it becomes very, very frustrating. Just the, uh, you know, just how much, you we we oftentimes just don't realize how much of this is going on until we get affected by it ourselves, you know. Oh, yeah. Sometimes you see what what goes on, uh, and it's just from the inside, and it's, Someone said, we don't have a justice system, we have a court system. Right. My cousin, who sort of took over for, uh, you know, from my uh, grandfather and father's business, it kind of went down to him. Uh, he's talked about it well recently, because he, like I say, he's in Nebraska, where there are so many people who are just so rough and like, you know, yeah, get them criminals, get them, you know, get them bad guys yeah, or whatever. Hang them high. So they, yeah, they vote very, you know, very much that way. And then they themselves wind up in that same situation. They get convicted and sometimes unfairly, and they'll be like, why'd this, you know, happen? My, <laughs> and my cousin will be like, well, you know, how did you vote? Did you end up voting for the, you know, for the person who was all about fairness or the person who was all about go get them? Well, yeah, the person who go get them, but I meant go get other people. It's like, well, <laughs> they, go they, get me. Right, and that's what they say. Everybody thinks it'll never be me. It'll always be somebody else. They'll always get somebody else. And it's like, no, that's, they'll get somebody else if it's a fair system, but if it's all about... Get get them. Well, sometimes you're the them. Exactly. So everybody needs to recognize you can be the them. You can be the one who's in the target thing. Well, it's not always that imaginary supposed bad guy that you have in your head. Yeah, there's a, so. a up in uh, the Pacific Northwest. Guy's sound asleep at home, and another guy comes and takes his truck, steals his truck, and goes out and commits a variety of heinous crimes, and then returns the truck. Guess who gets arrested? <laughs> The guy was asleep who owned the truck, right? He just assumed uh, it was him. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. He got, finally got out of that one because there was enough witnesses. You can have a situation where an eyewitness will identify the wrong person. That's a rough one. We had Willis Wilson on the show. And uh, when they were after him, they wanted to convict him of seven murders, and he'd never done any of them. But uh, yeah. they kept trying to cut a deal with him. If you'll confess to these, we'll get you 35 years instead of life, and you're only 50 now, you know. But he uh, he would not confess because he didn't do it, and uh, yeah. fortunately, the jury only took them forty five minutes to bring back the, uh, the not guilty verdict. And the judge says to him, "Son, you've had a rough time. I'm going to take you out for ice cream." <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm wishing my uh, I knew some. I remembered some more of my dad's stories because he knows not only his own but my, his father's, and he can just go you know rattle them off. I, it's another one of those things where I, I hear stories and some of them I just forget unless I write a book about it. I tend to forget. Um, but I do remember, what was it? There's a, there's a documentary Peter Jackson made actually about, uh, it was a famous case and it was like several young, I think it was three young guys, teenagers, who got accused of this heinous crime of like murdering, these, raping, murdering these kids mm-hmm. and were on the death penalty and then they ended up having a, uh, an offer where, well, we will actually literally let you out of prison as long as you, you, you'll not only not get the death penalty, but we'll let you out of prison, but you have to admit to having done it. Yeah. And it's like, that's completely counterintuitive. Yeah. To, if they believe they did it, then that's all the more reason they should be executing them. But I think the Central Park actually, Five or whatever it was, uh, the court right. wrote such a book about. But he even says yeah. in the true crime book, the last chapter, the author says, I don't believe they did it. <laughs> I think right. they're, they're completely innocent. And people, uh, including our, our current uh, the head of state, were saying, you know, hang them, hang them, hang them. And fortunately, yeah. they didn't because, it, sure enough, it turns out they were innocent. And they finally yeah, well, and they didn't even know who did it. Yeah. But yet, instead of going after the guy who really did it, they said, you know what, just so we can close this case, say you're guilty and we'll let, set you free. Yeah. And it's just like, Well, if they say the they're guilty, why would you set them free? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. The entire logic from beginning to end on that is just completely screwed up. But yet that is literally the justice system. We, I mean, I, I grew up very, very, very cynical, but it's because I literally grew up the son of a lawyer seeing this. I mean, I, you know, there was this famous case that was, uh, was going on while I was being raised. 
then I completely took it for granted because there were so many other cases like it where it was just the, you know, I'm not somebody who says all cops are bad, but I certainly saw more than enough cases where there would be, you know, I mean, this is almost like the culture sort of catching up with what I'd seen growing up. There's so many cases where, I'd almost say more of the prosecutors are, you know, because of the fact that they aren't always bad people. They're just, in fact, they're oftentimes really nice when you talk to them, but they're so often so um, incentivized to just go after whoever, yeah, uh, and and it's our fault. That is the public's fault because we're the ones who vote them in. And it's like we need to learn. And it's not numbers; it's justice, and we need a, a form of justice, not of just just courts for the. Of course, as court. you know, anytime they catch anybody doing anything like they catch a serial killer, uh, they try to clear every conceivable case that they could put on him, whether right. we did him or not. Then you have real crackpot serial killers. Like, I can't remember what the guy's name was, but he confessed to like a hundred and some murders, which most oh, wow. of which he certainly didn't do. But he wanted <laughs> he wanted credit. I mean, once you've killed somebody, you might as well kill two or three, you know, because the punishment's the same, he figured. Right. So why not confess to a hundred? You know, get the Guinness right. Book of World Records. You know, that's a, that's a good point. I never even thought about that, but you're right. That's a very good point. At a certain point, it's like, they're going to execute me. It's not like, you know, it matters whether I got 20 or 100, so might as well go down as, like, yeah. a bigger name serial killer. Or if even yeah. an individual killer, like Mr., what was his name, Treehouse or whatever. Dan Zupanski's uh, excellent book, uh, The Show We Dance Murders, Trophy Kill, where the guy... Yeah. Was, Specifically, committed the murder so he could be known as the most disgusting and repellent and horrible murderer in the history of Canada. That was his motive. He wanted to be famous for being horrible. And so he did his horrible yeah. murder, did horrible things to the corpse. He goes, hey, do I qualify now? Do I get the award? Kind of like, you know, America's got talent. You know, Canada's got a killer. And that's why he wanted that designation. And uh, so if you haven't read Zapansky's book, it's quite good. You might want to get that okay, one. Okay, yeah. Well, you know, one of the, the news channel that I like the absolute most is uh, the Philip DeFranco show on YouTube. And one of the things that he does that I like so much is he refuses to show the, to show the name or the face of any killer. So anytime there's a news story about a killer, he says the suspect or the, you know, the killer or something right. like that. And then when they show a video of the person, he always blanks out their face. And his specific reason is he says yeah, there are some of these killers who specifically say I'm doing this for the fame I don't want to give that guy the fame right uh, yeah and it's it was, and there was somebody recently who literally said it one of the one of the serial killers who said they did it for uh, for the fame and you know he's like this is why I do this this is why I will not say say their names or show their faces yeah so because I mean some people yeah. are just so twisted you know and, and what's tragic about it is, is in most cases I mean there's only two ways as far as we know so far is you get a psychopath Either they yeah. are born with a missing chip, shall we say, in the brain, but they don't have the emotion chip. The other, the the other is a combination of a head injury and some form of abuse, and uh, right. those are the, the two methods. And uh, even with sociopaths, if you can get to them before the age of fourteen, when they go through puberty, and explain to them your life is going to be miserable if you make other people's lives miserable, and right. they'll, they'll get it. And there is a website, and I've mentioned this before, for uh, sociopaths, run by sociopaths. And you know, they have a forum, and they talk back and forth. And I remember reading this one guy. Well, they gave one of my short stories a bad review. But I enjoyed being on their site anyway. And uh, yeah. there's one sociopath saying, I know that if I do the things that I would just normally do, because the only person I think about is myself. I don't care about anybody else. don't care if I hurt anybody. But I have learned that if I do that, my life is going to be impacted and I'll be unhappy by the ramifications of me doing these horrible things. So, just for my own sake, not for the sake of anybody else, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to rob, I'm not going to cheat, I'm not going to steal. And it was Dr. Robert Hare who wrote the book Without Conscious with his uh, major book on sociopaths and psychopaths. said, before there was regulation... The largest number of sociopaths in one place was the Vancouver Stock Exchange. <laughs> Every sociopath wow. in Canada migrated there because it was unregulated. And they could screw people over. Wow, and they, man. And they can do it without well, having to go to jail. Yeah. Like these yeah. people who call up and go, Hi, I'm calling from Social Security Administration, and, and you're going to be arrested next Tuesday unless you tell us the following information, such as 
your social security number, <laughs> your bank account pins. And, and the other ones yeah. call. I'm calling from the IRS. You know, no, they're not. The IRS doesn't call people. Yeah, no. Oh, that's where that's happening. I've gotten some of those calls, and I've actually saved them sometimes because I find them so funny and st- unbelievably stupid. Um, oh, yes, we have uh, yeah. all these actions are being taken against you, and you may be going to prison unless you right. give us all sorts of sensitive information so we can rob you. Oh, yeah, exactly. But people fall but, for it. I mean, you, people don't know any better. Right? Some of the things when they will go on, they don't, yeah, some of them, <laughs> their English is even so bad that I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're from the IRS, huh? My name is John. Yeah, your name's John. Yeah. His name is Sarush. Don't tell me your name's John or your name's Sarush. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, oh, really? You are from the IRS, huh? How is, yeah. I'm the weather out there. Didn't know the IRS had an office in Bangalore. <laughs> right. I'm getting right. a lot of exactly. Netflix. Uh, getting now uh, emails that uh, my account's being suspended. Yes, I get that from a guy calls me on the phone. We're calling from Amazon. Uh, you had $714 in fraudulent charges on your uh, bill. Uh, you're going to get charged $714 unless you give us your password. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really? somebody actually stole one one of our passwords recently, and of course, you know, you, can, you know, once we got it back, I think it was Netflix. Once we got it back from them, you know, once we locked them out and got it back on it, we saw on our password, and we figured, oh, criminals—they probably watched all this, like you know, uh, already. Yeah, they put on all these kids shows, <laughs> and I was like. Well, you, so the thieves go up so they can watch kids. I always felt a little sad for them. They treat yourself, um, treat the kitties. Yeah, they do yeah. that. Yeah, it's very, very, uh, very strange. Yeah. When, when I was in the hospital a couple of years ago trying to stay alive, which I managed to do, uh, I'm proud to say the jury's still out, bro. The jury's still out. I could be in the twilight <laughs> zone. Yeah. That everything I had was hacked. Everything, all my accounts. Like someone sitting around waiting. Let's see if Burl Bear stays alive or not. But as long as he's under heavy sedation, let's <laughs> violate his bank account. I had charges on my bank account that I sent money to this person to that person for rent, for ammunition. <laughs> God knows what. And so I explained to the bank, very politely, oh, this is impossible. First of all, I've never heard of this person in my entire life. Second of all, at the time that I supposedly was doing business with them, I was under heavily, heavily sedated with my heart taken out of my body and I'm on a heart-lung machine. I didn't pause in the middle of the surgery to send someone I don't know $250. And they still kept telling me, we've investigated and we decided you did this. You actually had this charge. I appealed it three times. Three times they still said, no, you did this. So there is an, actually a, a branch of the United States government that investigates complaints about, against banks. So I filed a complaint with them. Amazingly enough, the minute they were contacted by this branch of the federal government, they immediately saw the error of their ways. (laughs) 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 I don't know what it took for them to suddenly understand what was going on, but boy, that request for for the uh, government to examine (laughs) their banking practices kind of made a difference. I even had fraud done on my uh, Bank of America account show you how clever and brilliant the customer service rep was they said Mr. Bear we're going to reverse that negative thing on your account and give you back that that money Uh, we're going to have to give you a new card however it'll take three to five business days for you to get it I said fine go ahead reverse the charge I'll go in I'll get the money and nuke the card they did it in reverse order they froze the card (laughs) and then credited me the money which I could not no yeah. longer get. <laughs> I couldn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> you said that's Bank of America? Yeah. Well, yeah, the Bank of America yeah. doing uh, handling some stuff for, of all things, the United States government. <laughs> they don't really give you an account there on those. They just, they provide the uh, debit they service, card. They, they, they service, service. the yeah, account. government account. Yeah. So uh, yeah. there's no way for me to get the money until my new card arrives. We could have done it the other way around, but no. Yeah. Yeah, I always had problems with them. I, when I was with Bank of America, I <laughs> I got away from them as quick as I could. They they were constantly giving me problems. What I always think is fascinating is that if you can look this stuff up, is every one of these major banking institutes, whether it's uh, J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank of America or Citibank, any of these, 
have all been fined billions of dollars not handling things properly. But when you look at how much money they made in fines and fees and late charges and all that stuff, and compare it to what they had to pay a fine, it's like the cost of doing business. They're called alternate income streams. Really? Mark has worked in the banking world. Yes, I I, I worked for banks for 20 years, so it was loads of fun. So did you find out why they were so crooked? Um, Well, the ones that I worked for weren't. There were crooked individuals within the business that either got caught or got away with it. But as a whole, no. But um, I remember when ATMs were brand new. And, you know, one of the first adopters here out in the West Coast. uh, And they were being advertised, you know, um, save a trip to the teller, go to the ATM. Because you're going to the teller, it costs money. So having them go to the ATM saved the bank money. And so this was a six-month campaign, and people are went off onto the ATMs, and we're all happy. And we had a big meeting. It was so lovely. Everyone was there, all of her management. The uh, CEO was there. It was, it was really good. And they were talking about these uh, alternate income streams. And they were talking about charging people to use the ATM. And, you know, no snot-nosed kid raised his hand and goes, mm, No. We just advertised for six months to get them away from the teller to the ATM, and now you're going to punishing them for doing what we asked? Mm-hmm. All right, yeah. So you notice your bank doesn't charge you a fee for using their ATM. They charge you a fee for using somebody else's ATM. Uh, yes, well, that's, uh, there's an, that, there is rationale behind that. Um, there, is, there are organizations, uh, Star was one, when I was with Home Savings, we had our own switch that we purchased and managed ourselves. Banks, banks subscribe and join these networks. If you remember in the early days, your card would have these little logos on it. Star would be one. Um, and then the banks would route foreign transactions through those networks to be routed to the uh the owning institution and then back again. And so there was, an, there was a physical cost to join the network to get, that, um, to get that functionality. So there is a cost to the, to the institution to provide the service. And so the chargeback is, you know, is reasonable. Yeah, I didn't. It used to be a buck twenty-five. $3 now? Now three twenty five dollars been You know, it's been 30 years. I have no idea how much these these uh, cost the institutions. They may have consolidated yeah. into one or two by now instead of the, the half dozen or more. Mark, remember we had on the show uh, a guest who developed a way of, let's say someone's holding a gun to your head and is taking the money, taking you to the ATM and you're supposed to withdraw your money. Yes. That there was a way that you could Put in when we went to put in your pin. That if you put in this particular code, it locked the machine. You couldn't get the money out, and the police were immediately notified. And no bank would go for it. Um, the I can understand the liability is if the robber panics and shoots the person. Who's who's responsible? But the bank for uh, closed up the machine. Yes, the bank closes the machine. You can't the the crook can't get the money. Panics, shoots the person. And runs away. So who's liable for that shooting? If the if the person had given the money out of the bank and handed it to the thief, there's a chance the thief would have left. So there's definite uh, liability issues with uh, with that. The I don't I don't never understood why they took the video cameras away. They took the video cameras away. Yeah, they, that was uh, early on. They, the videos went away because it was expensive to oh. keep the. Oh, I thought them. they still had those cameras there, so in case they were robbed, they could see you get robbed. Right. So they, 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 the technology has changed, and now um, solid-state recording has uh, eliminated the need to have 30 or 40 uh, VCRs <laughs> recording. Yeah, recording on, on yeah. super slow speed. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, there's, there's got to be some kind of a liability issue if the bank takes an action that causes a person to be injured. So that's why, huh? Most likely. Covering yeah. their cosmic banking bucks. That is an educated guess, but I'm going to have to good, A good guess, because you've you got to know the business. And you've probably even worked uh, with banks and even written a check once or twice in your life. Ah, <clears throat> when um, I was a youngster uh, and checking accounts were new. 
You're that old? Yes. <laughs> um, Home Savings uh, created their uh, checking account. And I got the third uh, checking account at Home Savings at the branch in Encino. So mine was the branch number and all zeros and a three. Was Whoa, how about that? Right. The branch manager and the assistant manager had one and two. Um, <clears throat> but the, the uh, wonderful people at corporate who programmed the system didn't take into account in all places the branch number. So if you had account three in Woodland Hills and I had account three in Encino, the system treated them as the same. And boy, what a mess did it oh, cause. Oh boy, the money's going into the wrong... Oh, money was flying everywhere. Um, if I made a deposit, then the account reflected the deposit. All, all zeros in a three accounts got that deposit. <laughs> Same with withdrawal. Oh, that's a mess. That's a nightmare. Um, I was young, and I don't know how they fixed it, but uh, whatever was supposed to be in my account was in my account. And if remember, <laughs> at, the, at that time, you had those little brown fake leather passports. Yeah. You know, that, that opened up, and it would, be, it would print what you did. So you could hand them that, and then they went on it, and then made my account match what was there. Uh, but I remember when I, when I was working for Gray Western, we started with the ATMs. Um, the ATMs have, in the back, they have three cash um, uh, cylinders or uh, repositories. Um, and it can hold somewhere upwards of $60,000 in 20s. And there's three of them. And there was fives on the left, tens, and 20s on the right. And then you can ask for your money in those denominations. And this was fine for about two weeks until the ATM started to uh, run out of cash. And there is an in, you, you hire an independent company that's responsible for replenishing the ATMs uh, that aren't inside the bank. And so they would go and have the, the ability to open the ATM, put the cash in, run the stuff on the back to get the receipts and what they all that good stuff but the some of the technicians either didn't care or didn't pay attention or got it backwards but the left middle and right slots did not all contain the correct amounts some were just jumbled mixes some had 20s on the left instead of on the right and blah 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 and uh once this started people caught on they go to an ATM and ask for, say, $50, and they want two 20s and a 10, <clears throat> and they would get um, all 20s. Nice work of you. But did. the account would reflect, and the ATM would reflect that they got 50 bucks instead of 100. And so they would, you know, and if you went and asked for five bucks and got a 20, you would just ask for as many, too many $5 you could get. Uh, is, that, is that the reason why they only spit out uh, 20s? Um, until recently, yes. That is exactly why. See, I never knew why that was. Now I know. Um, this program is valuable. <laughs> that, yes, it was... Uh, um, even, even with the attempt to... to reconcile the missing cash uh, with the customers that asked for, you know, $20 and got a 5... <laughs> the other side of the equation who were really pissed off um, they never figured it out we were, we were unable to unravel the knot and account for all the money and so we just totaled up uh, the money that's missing versus, uh, plus the money the customers claimed they were cheated from we made all the customers accounts correct according to what they said good or bad and wrote it all off what else did and then do? everything went to 20s. Now, this is a perfect place to segue to the great heist. Ah, how much did they get? How much did they get in the great heist? To what again? I'm sorry. How much, how much did money they... did they get in the great heist? Oh, uh, that was uh, $2.7 million, which in today's money would be about $32 million. That's a nice chunk of change to get in a bank run. Yep. Yeah, largest amount that was ever taken from a bank, and the uh, what was it? and um, and all of it was returned. That's 
That surprise that blows my mind is that these millions of dollars are stolen from the bank, and who gets the money back for them? It was Al Capone ultimately makes sure that the robbers get give the money back because some of them were the same uh, guys who committed the St. Valentine's Day massacre, and so they were some of the same people who worked for Al. Um, it's sort of a long whole, a long story of how it kind of comes around to them. In fact, it was originally supposed to be just a chapter in the book Two Gun Heart, which is about Al Capone's long-lost brother, who was a prohibition officer in Nebraska where the money was stolen. And initially, I was having it be just a chapter because I thought the, the story was that simple, that he just basically learned about the, the money being stolen, went to Al, said, hey, we agreed to stay out of each other's territory, and Al said, yes, okay, and leaned on and gave it back. But the story wound up being far more complicated. It basically ends up involving the county attorney. We were talking about a lot of county attorneys being corrupt. Uh, in this case, the, the, the guy, Max Cole, who was about the most corrupt uh, county attorney that, that there ever was, uh, literally ran the gambling rackets in Nebraska. Um, he, uh, he ended up... Uh, um, basically blackmailing the mob and making sure, you know, making... <laughs> we'll give you a bad uh, reputation if you don't do what we say. Yeah. He, he literally basically kidnapped the three gangsters. Uh, oh, there's a word for it. I can't think of it right now, but basically held them and said, I'm going to give them because the police basically believe anything that, or, you know, the public basically believes anything that I say. Uh, and in fact, he had actually gotten witnesses to point them out uh, as saying they're guilty, they're guilty, when what he'd really done was he had really, uh, oh, what do you call it, uh, he'd really sort of pushed them to saying they're guilty and, you know, encouraged them to say that they're guilty. Um, and so these people, not really sure if they were actually the bank robbers, but yes, they were, and ended up, uh, you know, holding them and saying they're going to get like 20 years in prison unless... You show me who the actual, because he, he even took them aside and said, look, I know none of you guys did this, but I know that you know the real yeah, ones yeah. who did this. So you tell me who they were and, uh, you know, and I'll let you go and you help me get that money back. Uh, because it was literally going to break. This was like the beginning of the Great Depression and there was no FDIC, so there was no insurance on all this money. And so it was going to just literally destroy the economy in Nebraska. Uh, and so they... Uh, ended up, um, I mean, he basically through that, got to Al, but he still wasn't going to give the money until his brother came along, and it wound up being the last thing Al did before he went to uh, prison. Hmm. And, well, he, and, to and make he, sure the money was returned. And he didn't really have syphilis after all. He didn't really have what? He didn't have syphilis after all. In the movies, he always dies of syphilis. Well, I, I know his... his I know that his uh, niece says that he he didn't, but w her reasoning is she says, "Well, the family told me that they they didn't that or they, that he didn't have syphilis, and she was eight when he died." Yeah. So yeah, I mean the doc. I've even seen the doctor report that was he went to Gettysburg. Ironically, it was Gettysburg was the the, the town that that Al was going to for treatment, and that was, the doctor said it was uh, it was um, basically recurring syphilis. There was, uh, syphilis sort of coming back, um, it was, or and it was uh, complications from it that they died from. Um, but yeah, she says, well, my uncle said that uh, that it wasn't that it was something else, so that I believe that that's what it is. It's like, well, yeah, are you going to tell an eight year old child that your that your uncle died from a sexually transmitted disease? Uh, she, she never. How, how do I catch said, that bomb? Yeah. Well, sorry, Sagan. How do I catch that bomb? She asked sheepishly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's just it's one of those things. And the the, the rest of the Capone family has been like, nah, that's not. Uh, <laughs> they know that what she says it is, and she also makes some other claims that it's like, dude, you were five at that time. They were not telling a little five year old girl. I mean, not only because she's so young, but also that generation of men we're not exactly all about telling girls anything. Yeah. So, yeah, they probably told her certain things, but, I mean, her, all of her evidence comes from, well, I was there, and they told me this. It's like, okay, but did you actually check the documentation? I didn't need to because I was there. It's like, they didn't tell a child, especially a little girl, everything. So, yeah. no. But, uh, anyway. <laughs> it does make for interesting reading. She also says that the St. Valentine's Day massacre, that it actually was the cops. 
Yeah, no, that's, there's, in fact, there's been more than enough evidence, and in fact, people coming forward later on saying, no, I did this, I, you know, I forget the names of the actual people, I have their names in the, um, uh, what do you call it, in the book, but um, there's never been any evidence that, that the police did it, they never, uh, and like I say, there are actually some of the original members who in their later years admitted to it and all that, and oh, in fact, actually, one of the books that you can read is uh, called Al Capone and His American Boys, and it's from the point of view of uh, uh, Georgette Winkler, and she was the widow of, uh, oh, I can't think of his name right now, but anyway. Henry um, Winkler. Uh, yeah, Henry Winkler. I'm sorry? Yeah. Henry Winkler. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I almost said Winkler, Henry Winkler, but it's not that. Uh, his name's even spelled slightly different, but um, he, um, did I say Winkler? I, you know what, I might be wrong about the name. I'm, let me find it here while I'm talking. But basically, she was the, the widow of one of these gangsters, and she was able to give, in her after she died, actually, uh, she, she, she did not publish while she was alive. So she was after she died, uh, she allowed it to be published, and she told all this behind-the-scenes information about, uh, the, about the bank robbery, about uh, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and basically all this stuff that happened. One of the things that was fascinating she told about was the fact that the guys were not paid for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The guy who was supposed to pay them had gambled the money away, <laughs> and the guys were really upset, and they went to Al, but Al was in hiding because it was about the time that he was getting charged. Um, so, yeah, Georgette, Georgette Winkler. And she, it's spelled a little different from the way we're used to it, uh, W-I-N-K-E-L, whereas the others Winkle, are not that Well, we're running out of time, and I wanted to touch on uh, uh, Bandwagon Online. Why don't you tell yeah. us about your website? Oh, thank you. Well, that's, my, uh, that's my website. That's the, where all my books are, and I'm actually going to be putting up my next book is coming out, which is about... Uh, uh, um, Stories and tales from the Vietnam War. It's going to be called Dirty Old War. Real quick, I wanted to quick. Last week you had said uh, about a lot of people who went through warfare experiences and stuff like that, they have difficulty talking about those experiences. Yes. It took me several years to get these people to talk about it, and then finally was able to put it into this book about their lives and experiences during well, that you know, war. Send Burl, send Burl a note when you're ready, and we'll have you back on and talk about it. Sure, sure, all right. All right, we've been talking to... Jeff. Jeff MacArthur. Read his books, as Burl says. Read them, believe them. Burl, what's next? Magic Pet Animal Disease Detective. Live in the Light of the Cloud. Now I'm already live. Dot com.